You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer, and co host, Dr. Rocky. Hey there, Kiefer. And uh, wow, that was the least amount of exuberance you've ever had, but good timing. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, as always, like to run through, I mean, this, the sponsorship is pretty clear cut. The products we put out and promote help to promote this show and everything that we do with Body.io. So, and uh, many of you know that I've also recently started to basically started a small publishing company. So there's a lot of a lot of books under the umbrella now, uh, of course, Carb Night, Carb Backloading, the Transforming Recipes series, which a new book's coming out soon, uh, The Jossa Method uh, by Jason Seib and Sarah Fragoso, uh, Deep Water Method by John Anderson. We also carry, and of course, Pattern of Health uh, by Dr. Fred Navarro. If you've not read that book, you, you really should. It's a lot of insight into um, basically, you know, the conundrum of behavior centered around health and how you could your behavior might actually be shaping your health in a way that is completely counterintuitive. Uh, so those those are all great books, uh, great reads. And today, uh, this podcast is going to be more health focused. I think the last couple we've had have been kind of performance focused. Um, but today we're going to be talking about diabetes and uh, for all intents and purposes, how to cure diabetes in a sense. Uh, this is not a disease that once you have, you have to keep. Uh, there are a lot of methodologies out there that can help get you well again. Uh, so our guest today is Dr. Jason Fung. Uh, Jason, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Rocky brought you to my attention uh, because we do a lot of similar work. I I help consult with Rocky, and he uses the first protocol that I ever published called Carb Night in his facility to treat diabetics. And he's had amazing results, you know, getting people off of all of their medications from cholesterol to blood pressure to their their diabetic medication. And I know you've been having phenomenal success as well with your protocol. So can you tell us a bit about your, your methodology that you use? You've got some great educational videos on YouTube, and I'm not sure uh, the, the audience has seen those yet. So, Yeah, I, uh, there, there's a couple of things that's very interesting about type 2 diabetes. So I just want to say that most well, all of my remarks are directed towards type 2 diabetes because sometimes uh, people aren't so clear. So type 2 diabetes is the one that's adult onset usually. We do see it more in children now, but it tends not to be the ones that you see in the 4-year-olds and the 5-year-olds. It's the ones that people tend to get when they're 50 or 60, although, um, and this is the one that's also associated with the obesity, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver, that sort of thing. Right. This so, is the case of resistance as opposed to not being able to produce insulin in the first place. Exactly. exactly. So in, in actuality, they're almost opposite diseases. That's why I don't want people 
confusing them because if they have type 1, then these remarks don't really apply to them. Now, 90% of diabetes or even more is type 2 diabetes. Um, but in case, the case that it's not clear, this is only for type 2 diabetes. And the thing that's really interesting, I think, about type 2 diabetes is that we have really dropped the ball, I think, in terms of how we treat it because we acknowledge that it's a disease of too much insulin resistance, as you mentioned. So what happens is that the insulin that we have is not working that well, so we produce higher and higher levels of this insulin in order to overcome this resistance. So that's fairly well acknowledged that that's the actual disease. That's what's causing all the problems is the insulin resistance. But yet, all our treatment is directed against lowering the blood sugars. The blood sugar only went high because of the insulin resistance. So in essence, we're really treating the, the symptom and not the actual disease. And that's really where modern treatment is completely in my opinion, completely off base. Because if you simply treat the high blood sugar and you don't do anything about the insulin resistance, then you're not really treating the disease. That's the root cause of the problem. So now you're not treating it, so it gets worse and worse over time. So what happens is that the diabetes associations say that, well, the diabetes is getting worse and worse over time. And so they say, well, that's because this is a chronic and progressive disease. But that's not actually true at all. The reason it's getting worse over time is that we're not actually treating the disease. We're only treating the symptoms of the disease. So that's, that's the problem. When you look at what happens with type 2 diabetes, when you actually treat the insulin resistance, the disease can go away. And you know this because there's studies in bariatric surgery where they, they the, this is commonly called stomach stapling surgery, where they cut the stomach to a very, very small piece. And people basically cannot eat. Well, the diabetes goes away even in these 400-pound patients with 25 years of diabetes. It goes away, and surprisingly quickly, within a couple of weeks. So this was not a chronic progressive disease. This was actually a curable disease. So there's the disconnect. If this is a curable disease, why, with all our treatments for, di for, for diabetes, all the insulin and all that, why is it progressing? Well, the only answer to that is that the treatments that we currently use are completely wrong. And that's because we're trying to take a dietary disease and treat it with drugs. Well, you really need a dietary and lifestyle-based uh, treatment in order to make a difference because that's the problem. You can't treat a dietary disease with drugs. It just won't work. And that's why recently I've switched to focusing very intensively on the diet and treating that, and by, by, by treating the, the actual problem, which is the insulin resistance, then the sugars get better. People come off of their medications, the sugars stay normal, they lose weight, and everything gets better. So that's the real, that's the real problem. It's, 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 a very interesting, it's a very interesting that uh, what, what we've done here is so completely wrong. Um, and even when you, when you talk to people about it, uh, they, they, they seem to understand the logic of where we've gone wrong, and yet doctors and diabetes associations and so on, they all persist in just treating people with more and more drugs. 
of course, drugs make a lot of money and the drug companies, they pay a lot of money for research. So they pay a lot of money to universities and that kind of helps perpetuate this sort of let's just give lots of people drugs sort of attitude. But in the end, it's all about trying to get patients better. And the truth is that we've done insulin treatment for type 2 diabetes for the last 25 years. And the sad truth is that not a single person gets better with that treatment. And it's not a secret. They tell you that. They tell you that if you get, take treatment the way that we're giving it, it's chronic and progressive, right? In other words, you're guaranteed to get worse. And that's really where, where a few years ago when the studies came out that really showed that treating the sugars was, it, it made no difference. That's really where it started to get me thinking, well, I think we're actually completely on the wrong track here. We have to do something differently. And that's why I developed the clinic and the program to really work on the, the, the diet. So we call it the Intensive Dietary Management Program. Um, it's not simply for diabetes. You can actually apply it to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is fatty liver, sleep apnea, all kinds of things, even common obesity. And they're treated the same way. They're actually all diseases of too much insulin. When, it's interesting that you oh, – go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say when I – we've had discussions like this on uh, the podcast and articles previously about why these medications very often make people worse. And the way I've explained it is – and this may be not entirely accurate, but um, – these medications actually do help with insulin sensitivity for a certain amount of time. So what we see is we actually do clear glucose a little bit, but we're actually putting it in the wrong place. We're still forcing it into us, you know, our fat, fat cells and these other storage mechanisms that still become saturated and the cell can only handle so much. And it gets to the point of saying, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm really at capacity here and the body is really getting to this point of sickness uh, where now it's even worse and these drugs are no longer working because we have saturated them once again and we see the insulin levels go back up, high blood sugar levels go back up and it becomes, as you said, progressively harder to fight and these drugs are really, in my opinion, just pushing people to the point of making it very, very, very difficult for them to get better. It, it, it actually, you know, not only allows the disease to progress, uh, I think there's a very strong argument to say that it helps the disease progress even faster uh, than if there were no medication given whatsoever. The one analogy I used is diabetes is kind of a defense mechanism. It's like, hey, we're at capacity. Uh, we've got enough energy stores. Uh, we're taking in an appropriate diet. We need to stop the storage of these nutrients. And here we come along and say, no, 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 no. we're going to force you to store more. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the insulin, um, insulin is the worst of them. Some of the newer drugs are not so bad. But I think you're absolutely right. See, what, the, what I say is that the disease of type 2 diabetes is essentially one of too much insulin resistance. So the question really becomes, what's causing all that insulin resistance? And the funny answer to that is that it's insulin that causes the insulin resistance, which sounds very strange, but when you think about it, it's not strange at all. So if you consider 
And, and it actually happens, not just for insulin, but for every single hormone and everything. If you think about what happens in a biological system, there's a, a fundamental biological principle called homeostasis. That is, the body tries to defend the, 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 where, the situation it's in. So if you try and move things over, the body will try and bring it back. So if you take a drug, for instance, such as um, you can take alcohol, you can take nicotine, you can take uh, narcotics, any of these drugs, the first time you use it, you get a tremendous effect. But the more and more you use these drugs, the body doesn't have as much an effect. So for instance, for addictive drugs like cocaine, the first time you take it, you see this tremendous high. The second time, it's a little lower, a little lower. And what you do is you compensate by taking higher and higher doses. But what we're talking about is really a mechanism of resistance. The body is developing resistance to these drugs. And it's not simply narcotics, but even for uh, nitroglycerin, so drugs that we use therapeutically. The body develops resistance. In other words, what causes drug resistance is the drug itself. And it's the same with antibiotics. If you use a lot of antibiotics, you develop a lot of antibiotic resistance. So the knee-jerk reaction is to just use more in order to overcome that resistance. So take the example of cocaine. The first hit, you get a very big high. The second, third, by the time you get to the hundredth hit, you're not getting much of a high. So you take double, triple, quadruple the dose. So you're trying to increase it. But the problem is that it's self-defeating because as you take more and more of the drug, you're developing more and more of the resistance. So insulin works exactly the same. In fact, we use it in therapeutics all the time. If you look at uh, activity, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, all those ADD kids who are taking Ritalin, Ritalin is a stimulant, right? So you'd think, wow, why are you using a stimulant to treat hyperactive kids? And the answer is that it works. Why does it work? Because as you take that stimulant, the body develops more and more resistance to the effect of the stimulant. So therefore, the body's own stimulants aren't working as well. So in fact, these hyperactive kids settle down. But they don't settle down because you're, you're settling down with a sedative. They're settling down with a stimulant, right? So that's really important to understand because the drug itself or the antibiotic will cause resistance under conditions of uh, high levels and persistent levels, right? So right. that's exactly what we're doing with the insulin. So insulin, when you keep giving it, causes the body to develop resistance. So insulin is what's causing the insulin resistance. So in other words, what you're doing, like you said, by giving the insulin is making it worse. And that's really important because it's not simply the progression of the underlying disease, but what we are doing is actually making the disease progress. Right. And that's a scary thought because we're actually trying to make people better. But you see, it's the, it's the, we understand it for, for Ritalin, we understand it for antibiotics, we understand it for cocaine, how you're using higher and higher doses. But we somehow, we don't see that in terms of insulin. We give insulin, we develop more resistance. As you develop more resistance, we prescribe more insulin. Well, that's not a very good strategy because that higher dose of insulin leads to more resistance. It's very much like giving alcohol to an alcoholic, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's simply making the disease worse. What's, what's very strange about the entire thing is that the patients themselves actually understand this better than the doctors. Because what happens when you prescribe insulin to patients is that they get fat because insulin makes you gain weight. Now, everybody knows that. But 
they all come back and they say something like, well, doctor, you're telling me to lose weight, that I need to lose weight, but you're giving me a drug and it made me gain 30 pounds. How is that good? And the doctor usually has no comeback. He just says, well, you need to take it, go exercise some more. And the problem is that it wasn't the lack of exercise that made him fat. It was the insulin that made him fat. So that's the problem. As they gain more weight, they're going to need, they're going to develop more insulin resistance. Then they take more insulin. Then they gain more weight, which leads them to take more insulin. And it's a vicious cycle. So we're not simply, we're not simply neutral or making it better. We're actually making things worse, which is a scary thought because we're actually trying to do the opposite. And these poor people who are diligently taking their insulin four or five times a day, they're checking their sugars four or five times a day, they're actually doing worse than if you just left them alone. And, right. But the fundamental biological principle is already well known. We just can't for some reason see that it applies to almost every single drug, almost every single hormone. But we think that insulin somehow is excluded from all the hormones. It's, it's very, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. So I'm going to be slightly contrarian here. Unless, do you want to jump, jump in for a second, Rocky? Because I think you know what no, I'm going to bring up. You go first. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you, one thing I, you know, one, one thing I talk about often and Rocky and I talk about on the show is, you know, the, these, the myopic focus that uh, the medical establishment kind of has on, you know, glucose control and insulin sensitivity and so on and so forth. And uh, I, I completely agree, you know, this is a disease of insulin resistance. And that is Rocky in particular in his practice likes to look at disease state. So that is very specifically looking at the amount of insulin resistance a person currently has. Now, here's where my contrarian point comes up. And I, I just want to you know, kind of frame the conversation around this because uh, very recently they've been looking at mammals who hibernate for long periods of time. And what they found is that mammals who hibernate in the winter have a very interesting mechanism uh, that is, uh, you know, somewhat um, expression related from, you know, DNA and can also be controlled through possible epigenetic means. And they're looking to reproduce this. And the phenomenon is which is the reverse in humans that as hibernating mammals get fatter, their fat cells actually become more insulin sensitive. So the fatter they get, the faster they clear glucose and the greater their insulin sensitivity. So my question here is, you know, we're having this conversation that's really just about insulin resistance, uh, which I would somewhat disagree with because in this scenario – they're looking to create a drug that would actually decrease insulin resistance the fatter a person gets. Now, if we just looked at disease state and we just referenced that as insulin resistance, in this scenario, people would instantly get healthier within, again, the same time frame of a couple weeks possibly. Their insulin resistance would you know, possibly disappear and they'd be clearing glucose even faster. But like you just mentioned – we would give them the ability to get massively, massively fat. So how do you think in, – in, for me, in that scenario, I would consider the level of obesity also a factor of a disease state that we need to look at. So let's say we're 10 years down the road. This medication comes out, and it would essentially eradicate the argument that 
insulin resistance is the problem because we have just eradicated insulin resistance. The fatter you get, the less insulin resistant you are. So in that scenario, how would you how would you frame this argument or how would you think about the disease state at this point? Yeah, I saw that actually. It was very interesting. I think what happens there, first of all, you have to re- remember that we're talking about hibernating animals, right? Right. So the entire point of the hibernating animal is to gain weight, right? right. They want to gain weight. Right. And yeah, how do you so- do that? Make them insulin sensitive. So if they're sensitive yeah. to insulin, they're going to be gaining weight, right? Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, we're, we're fully on board there. So, you, you know, my just question is, let's say we give human beings the infinite capacity <laughs> to gain fat, which I almost feel like we have engineered through our dietary recommendations. Um, how would you, I'm just, what I'm trying to do is help people reframe the argument to realize that, you know, yeah, it, it's what, what, not where, just, people... go ahead. Well, I think where people get confused is the that it's the compartmentalization of insulin resistance, right? So what we're talking about, and I hear this all the time, well, if the body's resistant to the insulin, well, those high insulin levels shouldn't matter. But it's really where you're <laughs> right. talking about. So is it in the muscles right. or is it in the periphery or is it centrally, right? Because obesity is not a disease um, in the periphery. It's actually a disease in the brain. So the disease in the brain is, it has to be in the hypothalamus. That's where the body weight is controlled. That's where obesity must happen. And what the mechanism is unknown, but all of these things don't affect each other. So if you have hepatic insulin resistance, which is insulin resistance in the liver, it doesn't affect muscle insulin resistance, for instance. So if you exercise, you can get your muscles quite sensitive to the insulin. Where it's important is in, the, in, in obesity is centrally, right? So all the peripheral sites, the muscles and the liver, the importance of the insulin resistance there is that the insulin resistance leads to high insulin levels. When you get into the brain, that's where it's going to have its effect. So exactly what happens is not quite known, but most people think that insulin, high insulin levels causes obesity because at the level of the hypothalamus, it's going to block leptin. And that's where it's important. So as you get more and more insulin, you block leptin. So to go over leptin very quickly, leptin used to be considered the be-all and end-all of obesity hormones. This was going to solve everything, right? But it turns out it was a very bit player because when they gave leptin to people, it didn't cure their obesity. It wasn't a major uh, issue there. So what we know about leptin is that it's produced by the fat cells in a negative uh, control loop. That is, as you get more and more fat cells, you produce more and more leptin. The leptin in turn goes to the hypothalamus and you, you change your behavior so that you eat less. That reduces the fat, reduces the leptin, gets you back into the proper state. If insulin is blocking the leptin at that site, what happens is that you're losing all control and your fat cells are producing lots of leptin, but it, the signal is not getting through. So you don't get the signal to stop eating and you produce more and more leptin, right? So that's where obesity turned out not to be a disease of low leptin. It turned out just like insulin resistance to be a disease of, in, uh, of leptin resistance, right? But the question is what's causing that? And it seems that that's where it is. So if the, the, the key is 
So the, this talking about insulin sensitivity versus insulin uh, resistance, it all comes down to the point that where is this insulin acting, right? Is it peripherally or is it centrally? So if you look at, uh, there's, a, there's a number of studies of genetics. The people who gain weight are no, not those that are congenitally insulin resistant. It's those ones that have insulin sensitivity, right? right. Which is the opposite. It means that the insulin has more of an effect. But the question is where? Where is it having the effect, right? Because if it's having all its effect in the hypothalamus, then that's going to make you obese, right? It has to have that, – that, that's where the confusion kind of lies. You have to compartmentalize where the insulin resistance actually lies. That's why exercise, while it's very important, has very little effect on some of these diseases because most of these diseases that we talk about, are diseases of hepatic insulin resistance. So increasing exercise increases your muscle sensitivity, your muscle insulin sensitivity, but does nothing for your liver. So therefore, a lot of these people who try and exercise their way, they try and eat a poor diet and say, oh, I'm going to exercise instead. It doesn't work because you're working on the wrong thing. So the, the whole thing about insulin sensitivity and the hibernation, it's, I think it's a different situation. The, the more insulin effect that you have, the more you're going to gain weight. That's the same thing that the genetic studies actually show. The people who are sensitive to insulin are the ones who develop obesity. But the insulin level depends on the resistance. It's the resistance is not important by itself. It's the resistance that leads to the very high levels. Right. So that, that's, again, where I'm going back to this idea of um... – you know, I, I just think, you know, the, the muscle is a good point because um, we they've actually shown in diabetic studies that um, and we'll center this around resistance training um, because it's usually recommended for insulin sensitivity. They've actually shown, you know, at a certain level of obesity in diabetic patients and depending on the extremity of um, diabetes, that exercise doesn't actually increase insulin sensitivity, what it does is it allows the translocation of the glucose transporters despite insulin resistance. Um, so the, these conversations are very, very important as you're pointing out um, what tissues are we looking at. So for example, the brain is always going to have some capacity to be sensitive to insulin. And we run into all kinds of issues there. Uh, we turn off the uh, protein misfolding gene that, that deals with these things when uh, we have proteins that are misfolded, which could be one of the characteristic um, pathologies that are related to dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that. So, you know, this whole idea of, like you said, that's a very, very good point. When we talk about insulin resistance, there's very few tissues in the body that do become permanently insulin resistant and that are highly sensitive in the way we think of with absorbing glucose. And you bring up a very good point that insulin has so many functions in the body. Uh, so, you know, for me, part of the disease state, and you, you kind of tapped on this a little bit with the people who are insulin sensitive are the ones who get bigger faster, which makes sense. So at, at some point we still, I'm just seeing if you agree or disagree, we still have to look at the level of obesity as part of the disease state. And I don't know if you agree with that or not. Um, in the in level my of obesity, yes. Sorry, uh, you, you broke up just a bit. There. Oh, um, sorry, sorry. I think that the obesity 
is actually very interesting because there's clearly a link between obesity and type 2 diabetes. So a lot of people think the obesity is what causes the type 2 diabetes. It can't really be that because, again, if you go back to studies of bariatric surgery, what happens is that these 400-pound, 500-pound people, their diabetes goes away in about three weeks, long, long, long before you've lost a significant amount of weight. They may go down from 500 to 470, but they're still significantly overweight, yet their diabetes is all gone. It turns out, I think, that the answer is that it's the fat in the liver that's causing most of the insulin resistance. And that's really the preferential site where you're going to take out food. So if you go on a very, very low-calorie diet, such as what happens after bariatric surgery, or when you're fasting, what happens is that the body has no food coming in, so it needs to start burning fuel. And the first place it pulls the fat out is the liver. So after a couple of weeks, two, three weeks of virtually a complete fast uh, post-surgery, what happens is that a lot of that liver fat is actually gone and the insulin sensitivity, which is mostly hepatic insulin sensitivity, actually disappears. So these people are still extremely overweight. They just don't have the hepatic insulin resistance and therefore they actually their, their sugars actually go back to normal, which is really interesting because it points out the fact that there's a disconnect between the obesity and the type 2 diabetes. One does not necessarily cause the other. What's interesting is that I think both, disease, both are diseases of too much insulin. So I think that obesity is a disease of too much insulin and type 2 diabetes is a disease of too much insulin. So when you tr successfully treat one, you necessarily treat the other one. But what's important is that if that's the underlying mechanism, then it points you in the direction of the cure which is you need to lower insulin levels. And we actually do the exact opposite in what we do. We increase levels because we give people insulin or we give people medications that increase insulin. Even when we prescribe these for the last number of years, people have used low-fat diets. Well, low-fat diets, if they're high in refined carbohydrates, tend to increase insulin levels. So again, you're going in the wrong direction for type 2 diabetes. If you come back to treatment and implications for treatment, the, the craziest thing is that what we've known forever that type 2 diabetes is a disease of high insulin levels, not low insulin levels, that's type 1, but it's a disease of high insulin levels. So if you think that this is a disease of high insulin levels, you'd think that the treatment is to lower those levels, not raise it up higher. Again, it's like giving alcohol to an alcoholic. In the short term, and this is what you're alluding to, in the short term, if some alcoholic is having withdrawals and they're shaking and you give them alcohol, then they do great. But in the long term, it doesn't help their alcoholism. So this is the same thing. You've got a disease where you have too much insulin. And we somehow think that giving insulin is going to make it better. Well, that doesn't even make sense. Not even a little bit. Right. And you know, we so that that's completely on par with all the works I do, you know, really insulin control and learning um, insulin's true role in the body can really help to change so many parameters, whether it's a health parameter, some people are really focused on aesthetics, you know, whatever you want to kind of relate it to when it comes to human health and the idea of health, 
and almost every disease. I mean, we can make arguments that cancer is, uh, at, you know, somewhat related to high glucose and high insulin levels. Um, you I know, what I, what I think, yeah. well, what I think we're still, so the question I'm still posing is that, do you think obesity alone is a problem? So I realize obesity and in the human body, obesity and type 2 diabetics go hand in hand. Um, I think that there's clear connections. We know a lot of the molecular mechanisms behind that. Um, they're surprisingly not that complex to explain to a lot of people. And that's why patients, I think, have a good handle on what's going on in their body, sometimes better than the doctors. Um, but but my question is still, you know, imagine we do have um, this. So if treatment remains focused on just insulin resistance, we could theoretically, so this is theoretical medication that may, may or may not come about or some sort of gene therapy or epigenetic therapy that may or may not come about. Let's say we do create the scenario where we can increase insulin sensitivity and we can make insulin sensitivity increase as the person becomes more obese. Um, and we do, because of these mammalian studies that we have, we do have plausible mechanisms that could make that happen. In, in this discussion that we've had so far, at that point, if we're focusing on insulin resistance, it sounds like, like oh, it's cured. We're done. Let's not worry about anything else. Insulin levels are low because insulin sensitivity is actually increasing at almost a logarithmic rate or even a linear rate, so we can just get fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. So, you know, what yeah, I'm, do, actually, so I, what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to get at here is, you know, it's not just the disease. The disease, I don't think, I, I think the, the full metabolic disease that humans experience can't be so simply classified as just it's, it's a disease of too much insulin, it's a disease of insulin resistance. I think there's more to it than that. Um, and, and that's I'm I'm trying to get your your feel for that. I don't think we've quite addressed not, that yet. Not that there. Um, I think that the the situation you're describing actually you can look this up. There's a mutation called the P10 mutation. P T E N P10 mutation, okay. and it was studied. So this is a single gene mutation, and what it actually does is exactly what you're talking about. It increases insulin sensitivity everywhere. The way they found this is that this is actually an oncogene, which means that it's a gene that's found in people who get cancer. Mm -hmm. So yep. this is very interesting. So it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine probably three years ago, four years ago maybe. So this P10 mutation does exactly what you're talking about. It increases insulin sensitivity everywhere. What happens? Well, you have a decreased risk of type 2 diabetes, a right. decreased risk, because since you're so sensitive to insulin, even little bits of insulin will shove all this glucose into your cell. But what happens is that these people get very fat, they have a lot of heart attacks, and they have cancer, even as their sugars are amazingly low. Right. So it's not simply the sensitivity. If you keep the insulin levels the same, but just increase sensitivity, you're not going to do well. You're not going to get type 2 diabetes, but you're going to get obese and you're going to get cancer. That's what it's right. saying. And that makes sense because this insulin effect is now amplified. The insulin level is not high, but your effect is very high, which means that your sugars are lower, 
but you're obese and you're getting cancer. So that's not the way to go. But mind you, that's not the normal situation either. The insulin resistance is important, but you've got to realize that in the end, it's what's causing that insulin resistance, which I think is the high insulin levels. And a lot of people get confused with the glucose because you mentioned the glucose and everybody thinks it's the glucose, but I think it has very little to do with the glucose. It has it to do because high glucose stimulates insulin, obviously. But if you take a sugar such as fructose, now everybody knows pretty well that fructose is pretty bad for you, like high fructose corn syrup, but it was never, it was for 30 years ago, fructose was considered very good. Why? Because fructose does not increase your blood glucose. In fact, it is a very low glycemic index. It was found in fruit, so they said, wow, this is the healthy fruit sugar, so we should be eating more fructose because it doesn't raise glucose. The problem was that the fructose, by the time it gets metabolized in the liver, gives you fatty liver, the fatty liver gives you insulin resistance. And that leads to the cascade of high insulin resistance leading to high insulin levels. High insulin levels leads back to high insulin resistance. So all this sugar that people are eating, which is 50%, the sucrose I should say, which is 50% fructose, it's not better for you because it, if you compare 50-50 fructose glucose versus 100% glucose, the glucose will make your glucose go higher. But the sugar, the sucrose, is much worse for you in the long term. And that's fairly well been well established in the last 10, 20 years. Nobody's going to argue that sucrose is particularly good for you. Nobody wants to eat a lot of fructose anymore. But that's the reason. It's not the glucose. They lost sight of what the actual problem is. It's the insulin. It's the insulin effect. If right. you look at fiber, for instance, it's the same thing. So the fiber, everybody pretty well agrees that having a lot of fiber is good for you. But why? Well, fiber tends to reduce your insulin levels. Again, not the glucose levels. That's why the glycemic index diets, they really just don't work because they're only measuring glucose. But the important measure here is the insulin, what's happening with the insulin. And again, if you think about what, what the key is here is that if you know that it's all about the insulin, that sets you up for the treatment. The question is now, how can I lower insulin? If you can figure that out, then you can make these things a lot better. Yeah, I think type two diabetes and obesity, and that's what we do. All our all our treatments are focused on how are we going to lower insulin, not glucose, not calories, not fat, nothing like that. I, I, I think that's a it's it's another good good distinction. Uh, some of the studies you mentioned about what gave fructose a good name at first. Uh, they were very unique, uh, at least in human diet, because they were giving large boluses of fructose to patients without any accompanying glucose. And in those instances, you can actually see a drop in insulin and you can see a drop in blood sugar levels. Um, and it turns out, you know, fructose goes through the same end pathways that glucose would, and it has an unlimited capacity to get into that. Uh, there's a trio of triple phosphate molecules now, the interesting thing is when you get to that level, insulin levels can then dictate where those triphosphates go into and what pathways. Do they become lipogenic or do they get used for um, metabolic processes? And it's the presence of insulin. So fructose by itself could look good and could look like a solution, 
But the problem is we usually get fructose with some sort of glucose load, which then turns on the insulin, which then changes the pathways that fructose will ultimately go to. And I think that's part of the problem we see at, at least in disease states advancing faster than they ever have before is, like you said, that high level of specifically a mixture of fructose and glucose. Glucose turns on the insulin, which then makes fructose go through pathways that are unfavorable to health. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we've got some of this data and people don't make that distinction. They don't realize that, like you said, it's insulin that is causing a lot of these changes and the, the, the lack of focus on insulin and all the changes that it creates is almost mind-boggling that people throw all that away. We have incredibly good detailed science about what insulin does in different tissues and the different pathways that it can affect. Um, but like you said, when somebody comes up as diabetic, it's like, oh, well, you know, here's the treatment, which, you know, is oftentimes more insulin or just to make people more insulin sensitive as much as possible or to clear glucose levels. Um, when we still have this issue of insulin changing the playing field. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's the key here, right? The insulin is really what's the key fructose. There's a question of, um, the other, the other question of fructose is really the amount because the, the thing about glucose is that the glucose can be used by virtually every cell in the body. So, when you take a hit of glucose, it's kind of dispersed through the entire body because all your, all your cells can use it. The problem with fructose, of course, is that only the liver can handle it. Nothing else. Your muscles um, can't use fructose. Your brain can't really use fructose. Actually, it all gets metabolized. A lot of peripheral tissues, once you get pushed into type 2 diabetes, actually can absorb and use fructose through the GLUT5 transporters. And once they get into the cell... Um, since there's a lack of glucose that often occurs in that scenario, and this is extremely type 2 diabetics, the hexokinases can then actually metabolize the fructose into the appropriate pathways. We just don't normally see that because as long as glucose is present, the hexokinases have a, pref a binding preference for glucose. So it actually turns out you can force the body to get into a scenario where the peripheral tissue will use fructose and that might be interpretable as a survival mechanism at that point. Um, so we do actually, in peripheral tissues, we can use fructose to a, a pretty good extent the sicker we get. That's interesting. Um, you're right. It, it, it sounds like in a, in a survival setting where there's really nothing else, your body will use fructose as a last resort. Yeah. But in, in most studies of relatively normal humans, when they look at fructose metabolism, it virtually all goes through the liver. So I suppose yeah. in the case that you have absolutely zero glucose, which is very, fairly difficult to do. Well, it's also um, in the extreme type 2 diabetes, which we're talking about. It's, this is actually a very common occurrence in type 2 diabetics. Um, so, and, and we can, uh, it, we're happy to, sh I, I've got a bunch of papers on that too. I'm, I'm happy to share with you. I, I found that to be an interesting phenomenon that it shows how sick we're actually making people and the, the difference. And you said it, you just like captured it with in normal people, we have certain reactions we can count on. But when you push people into this disease state of type 2 diabetes, 
we're actually treating people who have a different metabolic milieu than the norm. And yeah. you know, th this whole conversation that we, we've had here is making that differentiation. And I think that's, that's one place that you excel in your education and, um, you know, what I've had an opportunity to learn about your work is you make that strong distinction for people uh, that I, I, I think is lost in a lot of these conversations. You know, I would say I, I haven't whole, said a whole lot just because I, I kind of agree with everything that's being said. But <laughs> but you, you make that distinction between the, the normal patient and the not and the diabetic patient. And we know, for instance, from certain disease states that the genetic expression is different. And so, for example, the if you look at atherosclerosis, which is just a horrible disease state that's killing millions of people and costing our country millions, billions of dollars. We see them in patients who are not diabetic and potentially they are diabetic. But when you look at the genetic expression of the atherosclerosis, they're actually different in each population segment. So, so you can see that as you get sicker and sicker, um, all these processes change. And, and it, you know, what, what might apply for a normal, for a let's say, quote unquote normal patient certainly does not apply for the type two diabetic patient. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're right. The, 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 um, for, for, for us in clinical medicine, it's, probably doesn't matter. Not, it's not like we would recommend a high fructose diet in any case, in, 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 in either case, I should say. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, I think you're right because you do have to make that distinction um, for, for, for definitely. Um, but yeah, it, it's very interesting the kind of uh, turn we've had in fructose because fructose turn, started out in the 80s actually as really kind of thought to be this really beneficial sugar and then in the last 10 years everybody's just kind of turned on it i think appropriately yeah. uh, really pointing yeah. the finger to this hfcs and excessive sugar and increased sugar consumption i'm actually fairly optimistic for the future because having identified fructose as really one of the key players in causing a lot of insulin resistance and so on it's I think that set us up very well to have less obesity. I mean, a lot of people are very pessimistic. I think that's actually a huge breakthrough because prior to that, remember in the 90s, it was all low fat, low fat, low fat. Yeah. So all yeah. these snack wells and stuff that were full of sugar, all these jelly beans, they're saying, oh, we're cholesterol free, <laughs> right. fat free. That's all sugar, right? And it's like, <laughs> well, that's not very good for you. But at the same time, all the heart associations and stuff – we're all saying it's fine because it's low fat. It's fine because it's low fat. The fact that it was pure sugar didn't really register. And so I'm actually fairly optimistic for the future that uh, these things take a long time to play out. But I think that if you look at the incidence of obesity in the two to five-year-olds, it actually took a drop, which surprised a lot of people. But I think that's directly from the lowering of the blood uh, of the U.S. sugar consumption. If you look at U.S. sugar consumption, it goes up almost continuously till about 2000 and then goes down. If you look at soda sales, they've actually had about – Coca-Cola's had about nine years of declining soda sales. It's pretty impressive. The, the message has been getting through. And that actually makes me quite optimistic. So all these projections of, oh, we'll be 80% diabetic by 2050, I don't think they'll actually come true. And, it, and it's due to education efforts like your podcasts and for other people who are just trying to educate people that, hey, let's 
let's focus on really what's important here. Turned out not to be the fact, because we focused on that for about 30 years, was a total disaster, right? That's not opinion, that's just a fact. Right. Um, so right. now we're really starting to refocus if you look at books like The Big Fat Surprise and other books that come out saying that, wait a second here, maybe it wasn't all the fat, and more and more people like Dr. Lustig and point out that, hey, it's probably the sugar that's really one of the root causes here. So I think that's, that's, that's a great thing. And I think the other thing to, to understand is that once you understand these kind of processes, then you can reverse them. Like that's the thing about type 2 diabetes. Once you understand that, it's actually a reversible disease. Then you can actually start applying yourself to doing it, to reversing it, and to getting rid of it. Right? And that's the, that's the important thing for, for, for me who takes care of a lot of diabetic patients. It's funny how you mentioned how almost the patients are more savvy than the providers because I, I do speak with lots of providers on a regular basis. And it's so much easier to convey just the basic science to a patient and they understand it and they comprehend it and they'll apply it and they get better. Yet when you talk to the provider, it's like you're you know extracting a tooth. Oh. You know, you, you know you, they, they hear you, but it just doesn't compute. <laughs> yeah, it's like trying to say that fat was okay in around year 2000, 2001. So Atkins, of course, was the big guy. And the AHA, the American Heart Association, they hated him, right? Turns out not everything he said was right, but his core message that it's, it's I mean, it's not all carbohydrates. I don't think that at all. I think, but he really pointed the finger at a lot of these sugars and a lot of the white bread and the refined grains and so on, right? Those were the biggest culprits in the, in the whole carbohydrate, refined carbohydrate space. And he said it wasn't the fat, it was these, the sugar and the refined grains, right? But they hated him. He, he took a beating from, yeah. from everybody yeah. in the establishment. But now look, you, you go around and you say, oh, I'm cutting out white bread. That's just common sense. It's like that wasn't right. common sense. 15 years ago when Atkins was trying to spread his message, right? It's very interesting that things have changed. You say, oh, you, of course you should eat low sugar. Of course you should not eat white bread. Well, where were you in 1999, <laughs> right? right? It's, uh, uh, back then it's like, oh, I'm eating low-fat white bread. Good for you, right? That, that's what the official kind of uh, nutritional advice was. Um, so we've changed a lot, and it's it's sometimes so gradual that we don't almost don't notice it. But when you when you compare it, like the fructose, we've changed our stance 180. It's just been so slow and so gradual that people don't notice it. But I think we're going in the right direction. I think that's great, and, and uh, we just need to help it along faster so people yeah. kind of recognize some of the dangers of these things. You want to Rocky talk about because I know you know the procedural differences. I don't know if you want to talk about how you treat type two diabetes in your clinic, like because we, we use yeah, a so, different method than, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I came came across the same kind of, uh, over the years, you know, looking at my diabetic patients, obviously, um, I, I found the same type of things that you did. You know, we're giving patients medications that actually make their disease state worse, make them more insulin resistant. You know, and we're talking primarily sulfonylureas and insulin in general, just the amount of patients over the last 10 years coming to my practice on just hundreds of units of insulin. It, it, and it just absolutely made no sense whatsoever. And so um, 
basically, I, I think that, and, and plus, uh, although one thing that you might have not have mentioned so far was all these studies, you know, we've got four or five recent studies over the last five or 10 years that basically have shown that we can lower the sugar. But as you said, we don't really improve their disease state. And actually, sometimes we actually make people die faster. So a, a lot of this, this really stuck in my head. And I think that as I treated these patients in front of me, I, you know, I think one of the key methods I really try to keep in my mind is if I'm going to use a medication, um, it, it can't precipitate hypoglycemia. Because I think one of the reasons why some of these trials failed so miserably is because they were using you know, agents that created hypoglycemia and, and potentially worsen the outcomes of the trials. And then obviously, I, I think the gold is in the diet. And, and certainly we started using low carbohydrate dieting uh, in our practice to get patients off insulin. And it was actually fairly easy. Um, most patients who stuck with it, you know, within, you know, two to four weeks, they were either, they've either cut their insulin dose by 75% or they're completely off their insulin. And, and then, you know, one of the things that we always have to struggle with as a, as a physical provider is, is the maintenance of the plan and how to, how to keep them going. And, and so, you know, I always kind of hate the word diet because it's always inflicting some type of restriction. And uh, when I came upon Kiefer's protocol uh, of carb night, it seemed to really make sense and resonate that it, it allows patients to stay compliant with the plan in a way that you're not restricting anything from their diet but then potentially also um, improving their, their circadian hormonal rhythm as well. So, you know, in, in, you know, so it, you know, it may not be as often as a patient who's non-diabetic, but, but, you know, influxing some carbohydrate every once in a while periodically um, seem to actually make them feel better and actually accelerate some of their, their processes going off medicine and losing body fat. So that's kind of how we, I came across it. And then obviously I saw your, I, I don't know how I came across your YouTube video, but I came across your YouTube and I'm like, you know, I go, you know, Jason's something like, he's doing very similar things from a different approach, but they're both working. And, and that's yeah, kind of what, what we do. Yeah. I think it's a very similar approach because the whole thing, again, is if you keep the goal in mind, which is to lower insulin, then you can say, well, there's a, actually a lot of different ways we can approach this. So if you say, well, I'm going to go low-carb, high-fat, for instance, because protein also tends to raise insulin quite a bit, then you can say, well, that's going to be successful. If you simply say restrict all calories, that can also work because as you restrict everything, you're going to restrict uh, carbohydrates additionally. It's not as effective, obviously, but it will work because you have tons of people like uh, Neil Barnard and uh, McDougal, who are advocating these very starchy diets. But the thing is that they're very high in fiber, and fiber helps reduce insulin. So they're eating a ton of legumes and all this sort of stuff. So carbohydrate-wise, it's very high, but the end result is still, I mean, they're not eating white bread and sugar, right? They're eating broccoli and all this uh, whole foods and vegetables and legumes and tons and tons of fiber. In the end, the result is the same. It's lowering insulin. So whether you do it by a one of these uh, Joel Fuhrman sort of diets where you eat whole vegetables and no protein kind of thing, I think that will work fine. I don't think it's a very easy diet to follow in the long term, but I think it will work just fine. I think a low-carb, high-fat approach will work just fine, and we use something called intermittent fasting. Uh, the reason we use that is, again, I, have very, uh, I, I treat a lot of very severe diabetics, and really the most efficient way to lower insulin is really just to not eat anything at all because everything raises insulin a little bit and that's the thing if you eat nothing 
then you won't raise insulin at all. So that's the most efficient way to do it. Turns out it's actually the, one of the easier ways to do it in the long term as well. And that's, that's, um, that's, a, that, that's just another approach. But all of those approaches are going to work because they have the whole end result, which is lowering insulin. So a lot of the, these people, I'm going to a low-carb, high-fat conference. I'm giving a lecture in South Africa next week. But they, they, there's always this kind of rancor between the, um, the, the people who say, oh, well, you can eat a whole food, plant-based diet. That's the key to everything. And then there's a lot of people on the low-carb side who say, well, you should eat a animal protein-based low-carb diet or a low-carb, high-fat. I'm thinking, you're both right. They're both going to work. But you've missed the key element, which is that everything works by lowering insulin. If you lower insulin, you'll do fine. Or even if you eat one of these um, low-calorie diets, if it's low enough, it will probably work. The key is then, can you sustain some of these diets? So even uh, if you look at dietary trials, the key, as you mentioned, is actually sustainability. So the, the, the reason we use intermittent fasting is that people can sustain that forever. How do we know that? Well, there's religious groups, for instance, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, even the Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, they all have prescribed periods of fasting. So this is something that's actually been done by literally billions of people over thousands of years. So I know that there are billions of people who have maintained their entire life with period, episodic periods of fasting, which will lower your blood, uh, blood insulin levels, right? So I know it's, a, it's something that people can maintain. So Muslims, devout Muslims, for instance, fast Mondays and Thursdays. I know there are literally millions of people in this world who fast Mondays and Thursdays for their entire life, their entire adult life, I should say. None of the kids should be doing this uh, because kids are growing and you really shouldn't be fasting. Uh, but even but every religion actually recognizes that. They actually don't make the kids fast. They make them give up something usually, but they don't make them fast. So that's what's really interesting to me is that, as, as you mentioned, these sorts of diets work very well. Can they sustain it? Well, you can give them support and some people can sustain it. But I know that the intermittent fasting is a way that people can sustain because it's been proven. People have done it. Therefore, I know people can do it. They just need a little bit of support. These other plant-based diets, these low-carb diets, uh, low-carb, high-fat diets, I think they're all, all, all great. Uh, but the key is sustainability. Most dietary trials, even of the Atkins diets and the Ornish diets, they have huge dropout rates. By, by one year, you're looking at about 50% dropout. So it's not easy to sustain them. And that's probably one of the, the hardest parts of the, the clinic. So they need support. So what we do in our clinic is we work with patients and we go through their diets and we work with them individually and we give them options to, as to what to do. Uh, and if some people, some people are vegetarian. So we say, well, obviously an animal-based diet is not going to be the one for you. You can use whole vegetables, increase your fiber, cut out the grains, cut out the um, uh, sugars, introduce periods of intermittent fasting once a week, twice a week, whatever it is. And guess what? Their diabetes goes away. Um, for, for more severe people, we can take it away very quickly by a prolonged fast, but that has to be done under medical supervision. So that's what we provide as well. So I think that your approach is actually fantastic. I think it'll work very well 
And the key is really understanding that the current medical approach is actually terrible. And the funniest part is they don't even hide it. They tell you this right up front. If you go to these diabetes education centers, they tell you, you're diabetic. You're going to be on medicines the rest of your life. And guess what? If you take the treatment the way they're giving it to you, you will be diabetic the rest of your life. Right. It's funny how they don't even hide it, right? It's crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, they, they even tell you the medications I'm giving you are not going to prevent you from having a disease state like cardiovascular disease, right? Because yeah. none of them are able to prove it. So. <laughs> and they tell you that eventually you're going to go on insulin. So don't fight it, right? It's like, okay, what are you telling these people? It's crazy. It's crazy what you're telling these people. Well, right? it was, it's, it, it's interesting that you, you said about the plant-based people versus the, the high-fat, low-carb people. I, you know, I actually wrote a blog piece on my personal blog several years back, and my conclusion was the same. It was, you know what? It doesn't really matter what diet paradigm you're picking. If you're minimizing insulin, you are probably doing something good in the long run. And, it, exactly. you know, and I think one of my comments was, as it pains me to say this. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, th that's the truth of the matter because obviously these guys like, um, like Dean Ornish. I mean, he's not going around saying eat white bread and sugar, right? He's saying eat low fat, but there's no, there's no flour in that. Eat Neil Bernard and Joel Fearman, they're all doctors and they've treated people. They're not lying, right? They've seen that this diet does work and I believe them. But if you look at the diets that everybody's talking about now, they're actually not that different from each other, right? The key is that everybody pretty much agrees that you cannot be eating a lot of sugar. So most diets are zero sugar now. They agree that you shouldn't be eating refined grains for the majority of your calories. So even any of these uh, starchy, they, they call them these starch-based diets, starch power and that kind of thing. They're not saying eat white bread, right? They're eating a lot of legumes. They're eating sweet potatoes. Uh, they're eating cassavas, that sort of thing. Yams, those are fine. They're all natural, unrefined foods. In fact, if you look at the Okinawans, the traditional Okinawans, they were eating a ton of sweet potato, very starchy. And you know what? They were one of the longest-lived peoples in the world. There's no obesity. There's virtually no cardiovascular disease. They had more centigenarians than practically anybody else in the world. It was amazing. And their diet revolved around the sweet potato. Right? So it's not that these diets are so different from each other in reality. What people uh, have to understand is that they all focus on the same thing. You cannot eat processed food. You have to eat whole unprocessed foods. If it happens to be sweet potato, you're still fine. But you can't eat processed foods like grains, refined grains, refined oils, refined sugars. And that's the important thing. When you eat whole unprocessed foods, say you take a lot of carbohydrate-containing foods like sweet potato, you're getting a ton of fiber. So that counteracts a lot of the effects. It counteracts the insulin effects. So their insulin levels are not high. They're low. In fact, uh, Stefan Lindbergh, who did the Katavin studies, they're eating about a 70% carbohydrate diet. Yet their serum insulin levels were lower than uh, everybody but 5%. They're at like the 5 percentile compared to the Swedish uh, population. So very high carbohydrate diets, very low insulin. So is it the carbs? Not per se, it's the insulin. So again, that's, that's exactly as you're saying. What they agree on is, is important. No sugar, no refined grains, no unprocessed, no, no, no highly processed foods, right? 
if you stick to that, you can almost eat whatever you want because your insulin level doesn't go up. You know, I would, I would almost argue that you could probably even tolerate some of those things in small doses uh, periodically. And again, that's kind of coming back to what we use in terms of carbonite. So, you know, that periodization is going to differ on the disease state and the disease of the individual. Yeah. But yeah. certainly, you know, it probably doesn't matter depending on where you are and how you are cycling that carbohydrate and spiking that insulin. Um, it, it's just a matter of knowing where you are on that continuum and then dosing appropriately. I think that doing something like a carb night or something is actually fine because the key is not to have carb night every night, right? That's the, that's the right. thing. To get the resistance, you need two things. You need the high levels and you need the persistence, right? And, and again, we use this in uh, treatment. So when, if you look at nitroglycerin, this is used in the treatment of angina. So there's something called a nitro patch where you put a patch on and it slowly releases nitroglycerin into your bloodstream all the time. Well, it turns out if you leave it on all the time, it quickly loses its effect. So what do we do? We tell people to put it on in the morning, take it off at night so that they have periods where their levels are low. By having cycling these high and low levels, you don't get the resistance. So then you are able to get the full effect of the nitroglycerin when you're taking it. The same with the carbs. If you have a high carb night and then cycle that with a low carb night, you're fine. You actually do just fine. And so I think these things are actually not a bad thing at all. It's, it's just a matter of understanding where, what the role of the high insulin level is and what the role of the insulin resistance plays. If you cycle it and have periods of low carbs, you're going to be fine because you're not going to get that resistance. I would still argue, unfortunately, we're at the end of the hour. This has been a great, great podcast. Uh, I know Rocky knows I'm sitting here, you know, probably bounding out of my seat because I would still argue uh, that carbohydrates in general can be problematic. Uh, but the, the main focus for most people, especially those in a disease state, is really insulin control. Uh, and this, yeah, this has been a great podcast to help differentiate uh, for a lot of people, I think, you know, why some of these, well, A, you know, what we have to consider in a disease state. Um, B, that it doesn't have to be a progressive disease. It can be a disease that you can just stop and cure and see that, you know, why do we see what from the outside might look like confusing results because the diets appear to be so different, but the root cause of what they're, the root functionality of those diets is very similar. Um, and that's how we can explain what people think, you know, it, it causes all this controversy, but you know, if, if we look at the root cause of what's going on, there should be no controversy whatsoever. Like you said, um, you know, it's different roads to the same city, uh, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. And I think, to be fair, carbs are probably the problem in most people, but they're also the problem because people eat them every single day, right? right. It's not yep. like you're cycling them. You're taking 60% right. carbohydrates or you're eating white bread at every, you know, toast for breakfast, sandwich at dinner and potato at, uh, sandwich at lunch and potato. You're doing that every single day, yep, right? That's got, the real issue. Right. right. Elevated insulin, insulin levels every day, all day, uh, which I think where it's, it's a place that a lot of people in modern society are. Right. And so therefore for those people, yeah, the problem winds up being the carbohydrate. Yeah. You need to lower those every so often. Like, probably more than every so often. So it, I think we're talking about the same thing. It, 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 but the 
the bottom line is where is what is that effect on insulin and what is that effect on insulin resistance so i think you're you're right on i think you're spot on there yeah thank thanks especially when you know knowing your trips coming up in your talk thanks for making the time for our podcast it's been a great show oh, no problem no uh, problem this has been very enjoyable so if you yeah, um, actually, yeah. actually, it'd be fun to have you on again. I think we could co cover a couple more topics. Uh, yeah, I think it's very interesting, and it's, uh, yeah, for sure. That'd be great. All right, great. Well, um, thanks for being on the show. Is there any place you would like people to come find you specifically or find more information um, about what you're doing? If people want information, they can come to my website. It's www.intensivedietarymanagement.com. Uh, it has links, it has a weekly blog, which goes over many of these topics because they're very confusing. And also it has links to all the lectures on YouTube. There's a six part series on obesity and then there's more diabetes specific ones. Uh, so there's, there's lots of information there if, if people want to, to want to find out more. Great. We will definitely include a link to your site and actually we'll probably drop a YouTube video on the page for people to check out because you, you do have some great educational material in there that I, I think would um, be just very beneficial for people to direct their friends to who don't kind of understand what's going on with them or a little resistant to this idea of, you know, what modern medicine might be doing to them rather than, than curing them. So right. fantastic. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yep. And that is another episode of Body IOFM. been listening to Body IOFM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.